0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the
1: Systematic Investor Series with Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now for long-term listeners, our conversation is uh, intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey, and if you're newer to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to go and check our back catalogue of uh, all the episodes that you may have missed from the past. Jerry's out this week, so Moritz, uh, good afternoon. How are things with you?
2: Good afternoon, Niels. I'm doing great. I hope the same is true for you. It just started snowing here in Munich, or just south of Munich, which I think you've spotted through my webcam. If you didn't tell me it started, I, did, then I wouldn't have noticed it. <laughs> so uh, finally, a bit of a wintry feeling because, quite frankly. Um, this winter hasn't been a real winter for us we're normally used to some snow but it's been pretty warm so uh i don't mind the snowflakes outside of my window
1: that's right i mean i don't know if you can say that the markets are either very hot or it's been a cold winter for they're frosty (laughs) they're frosty yeah not so nice and friendly um and uh, i guess uh things that i noticed uh, this week you know we were talking about last week that um you know Government bonds, especially U.S. government bonds, I guess I should stress, had been kind of the preferred safe haven among investors, and and records were broken during the last week of February. Uh, and I think back then we saw, uh, you know, the U.S. ten-year um, note finish with a yield of one point one three percent, which by itself is pretty low. And then we go through this week, and we have another wild ride on Wall Street um and of course we had the 50 basis points kind of quote unquote surprise cut uh, by the Fed and now it looks like 1.13% was a great yield to get because the US 10-year basically dropped by 50% in yield to 0.52 at the end of yesterday and of course the 30-year also went to new historic lows finishing I think around 1.31%. So This is really interesting to um, be uh, allowed to uh, be on the first row of these uh, financial markets. I think this will go down and there will be some history books, I'm sure, being written where they refer to this. And why it's also interesting in a historic perspective, and that is um, that when you look at the, since the Fed was uh, incorporated, uh, the Fed was created in 1913. And there's only actually been two periods, or actually there's only been one period, I think, from 1928 to 1942, where inflation was less than 0.7%. And actually the average inflation since the Fed was founded uh, is around 3.1%. So in terms of real US rates, I think we can say now, for all intents and purposes, they are negative by now. So uh, interesting, I think, in, uh, in, in, in that perspective. And of course, just... Since you mentioned, of course, you're sitting there in south of Munich. Um, so uh, just uh, to put these things in perspective as to how maybe historic these times are, I saw that um, the uh, favorite German airline, Lufthansa, is yesterday out saying that they may cut 50% of their capacity across yes. the entire group. So not just Lufthansa, Swiss Air, Austrian. I think they own a few more. This is pretty dramatic, Moritz.
2: Interesting times. I've uh, got a tweet, or I know I looked at a tweet from uh, Nick Ratch, who, by the way, we're going to have on our show in a couple of weeks' time. And he sent a photo that echoes what you've mentioned last week, Niels. I think you've mentioned that on an airplane from Milan to London, there were only a couple of people. And he sent a picture through from an airplane with kind of like eight people.
1: Brisbane on, to on, Tokyo. Yeah. So the
2: exactly he, yeah. he saw the same one. Yeah. right? Probably an aircraft that takes two hundred people, and it's uh, kind of like you can pick and choose where you want to sit. Yeah. Um,
1: at so least it, they had three people in the cockpit, as far as I understand. So
2: <laughs> They better had um, interesting times about the markets. Uh, you're absolutely right, especially about the fixed income markets, I'd say. Um, I was getting breaking news alerts on my cell phone this week, saying the 10-year US is at 66 bips. Then five minutes later, breaking news, oh, it's at 60 bips. And then it's like breaking news and the 30-year is wherever the thing is, right? So, kind of like the target seems to be zero, uh, but who knows? Um, sixty-six bips for me sounds great because the bund is definitely at less than minus sixty-six bips.
1: So, we're, so where is the bund actually? Do you happen to know? Because I was I was watching it a little bit, and I was actually interest. I was surprised to some extent how different this rally in bonds had been, and how how Europe actually had not participated. Uh, I actually think well, I was following it a little bit, also in terms of uh, Danish government bonds, and I'm not even sure that they have made a new all-time high. Maybe they are just touching it, but certainly by no means to the extent that the U.S. markets have just ripped through the uh, the charts and the uh, you know uh, resistance level that you know uh, people were expecting. It's just um, it's been like cutting you know soft butter with a knife. I think
2: yeah, i'll I'll look it up in a minute where it is. Um, but uh, it's it's clearly negative. I mean, we all know that. and uh, sure. it has it has just, you know, I've been long the boons since many, many months, and uh, I'll tell you a bit about the boons in a, in a bit. i uh, I gave you the preview already, Niels, what I did with my boon position this week, but uh, I know that it has been moving substantially higher throughout this week, so yields must have been moving lower and uh, it's it's substantially negative. So um, look, I, if if I you know we're trading the futures markets, we're not here saying that we're we need to invest like an ALM context like an annuity for the next twenty years, and we need to hold on to that bond, luckily, right? But the imagination that you're buying those products, and this is before inflation, and they're already negative, right? So after inflation, who knows where they are. And then in 20 years' time or 10 years' time, you get your money back, but the value of that money is less. And the yield has been negative on top of it. It's just value destruction uh, by definition. It's, uh, it's brutal.
1: But here's the interesting thing, right? Because obviously, trend followers and many other people in, in this industry, I mean, we are by definition, we're speculators, right? So we, for us, it doesn't really matter. Meaning that as long as we have enough of a price move, um, hopefully we'll be able to to get out and sell our position, our long position, onto someone else um, before it all ends. Of course, the real big problem comes from the types of investors who, one, have massive liabilities out in the future, so they have to generate a certain long-term return to meet those liabilities. And now, as, as we talked about, I think, last week uh, in, uh, in, in the latest research from Chris Cole, um, you know, where he shows that like 70 plus percent of US pension fund exposure is equities and, and 20 plus percent is is fixed income. And okay, equity marks are down what, 10, 12, 13, 14 percent from the high? Okay, that's not a big deal really. Um, it's probably just because we've forgotten um, since, uh, you know, uh, Q4 2018 that these things can go down quickly. So, but that's already forgotten because it only happened, you know, a couple of times in the last. 12 or 13 years. My real worry and why I think this is just such an uh, you know uh, historic time and why I think this can lead to something much bigger than any one of us can imagine is just the, the the consequences this has for investors such as pension funds um, because if they can't meet these liabilities then it will hurt directly a lot of people and I think when people start feeling you know that hurt in their expected pension what they're what they've been told that they're gonna um, be able to retire from when they realize um, that that is not going to be the case then i think people will start to vote with their feet and that's where i think things get things change completely to what we've seen so far um and my big hope and i write about this to my clients uh, every week My big hope is that people will start taking this as an opportunity because I still think that it is an opportunity because they've made so much money on their bonds, on their stocks, and just make sure they get that insurance, that diversification before they really need it because this is nothing. I mean, frankly, people are, you know, these mixed portfolios, 60-40, 40-60, whatever the the, the mix is, they're still fine. They've, They've had, you know, overall, they're fine but they may not be fine in 10 years time or even in 5 years time and and that's just my big hope that they will start changing their view and not just allocate one or two or 3% to you know a non-correlated strategy like uh, trend following and i think also the other thing i think we'll see uh, over the next few years is just the importance of being able to go uh, short as well as long i mean the, the, the buy and hold and the long-only type strategies have dominated in terms of profitability in the last 10 or 12 years. It's been really hard because anyone who tried to go short would essentially get stopped out, and, and so you lose momentum in your returns. And we've seen that. There's no doubt about that. But at some point, again, that changes, and those shorts just become so vital, uh, especially in things like potentially you know fixed income, right, where it, the trend has been... We've seen, what, 37, 38 years now of non-stop, more or less non-stop, uh, drop in interest rates. I mean, at some point, that's going to turn. So
2: I agree with you 100%. We can only hope that investors diversify their portfolios and have the right exposures on before things change to the worse. Um, and... Um, Look, I, I just want to mention the 10-year German yield because we've, yes. uh, we've just uh, had this here. So it's minus 71 basis points. 30 okay. years, minus 29. Five years, minus 86. And the two years, minus 85. So the entire curve is negative. Yeah. Um, the same is true in Switzerland. I guess the same is true in Denmark. The same is probably yeah. true in But in minus 71,
1: other. that's about the low, right? It's not new, new, it, new, real lows. It's about the same low we saw, um, what... Uh, 6 months ago
2: i would say
1: this is the new low okay okay yeah, it has made a new low it has made a new low but what was the old low just because i'm i'm not uh, up new, to speed on this i mean it's i me i guess my, my point it. was that i felt when i saw the charts and the moves i felt definitely that that europe was not nearly as as kind of uh, making historic lows compared to what not we saw a, in the US not as
2: explosive as Canada yeah. and the US and yeah. also some of the Australian yeah. bond markets that's yeah. that's for sure and but back to your diversification point i mean one of the things that you know i observe when i speak to colleagues and and people out there in the field is that i think some let's say retail or individual investors they would have the willingness to change their portfolios and maybe try out something new or diversifying, such as trend following, but it's more like a capability that they're missing to do it because they're not accredited investors. You know, it's difficult for them to invest in hedge fund or impossible, right? Um, they may not have the right brokerage relationships. They're lacking the knowledge, so for them, difficult to get access. Whereas the institutions, for them, the technical capabilities exist. They can do whatever they want. They can invest in the hedge fund. They have the size and all of that, but the willingness doesn't seem to be there because of career risk and many other things. You know, it's very difficult for an institutional investor to even hold one, two, or three percent of gold in their portfolios, let alone trend following, where they say if it's three or four percent, then that's enough, right? They're they're not giving it the right quantities, and I think this is also echoed in um, Chris Cole's paper so nicely where it says like you have to substantially size into those type of strategies this is not 5% this is 20% into commodity trend this is 20% into long vol this is you know it's not 2 or 3% that doesn't help your portfolio and i agree with you it is time for investors to think about that it's always time to think about that but right now think about very closely very in, in depth what it is that you want to do with your portfolio and how you want that structured. Because like you say, Niels, especially those pension funds, uh, if it continues the way it does and they require north of 5% annualized yields and they're not getting it, right? We've just mentioned where the yields are. Then at some point that system will stop working. They will run out of money. They're already underfunded. They won't be able to pay pensions to the pensioners. And either that becomes a bailout or as you say, people will start to vote with their feet, and something will happen. Uh, but, you know, this this is kind of like on the horizon. You do the math. You know when they're running out of money with the defined benefit plans.
1: I, was, uh, I had the pleasure of being in your country earlier this week. Um, and it's quite funny because we often talk about the 60-40 portfolio. And I think most people know that in the US that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. But actually... Coming back from uh, from Germany, um, I was uh, of course reminded. I knew this, but I was reminded that in Germany it's like eighty five percent bonds and maybe ten percent max equities, right? In some of these uh, pension funds, and uh, and that's even that's even scarier in many ways because there you know if you buy the bond at minus seventy one basis points, well that is your return. Because they're not really trading these positions right, they can't. So, uh, or at least I don't think they are. So um, that's a scary thought when you have liabilities uh, and you know your return on a big part of your portfolio is going to uh, detract from your own uh, from your own portfolio every year. I know we
2: we have we really have it backwards. I think, but there is this mentality engraved in us Germans. I'm I'm not one. I'm, I'm a German, but I don't have that mentality where they. They go, well, it has to be, you know, uh, the the savings accounts and, you know, short dated bills and it has to have the security and please no risk and no volatility, it's not allowed. So
1: On top of that, I also learned that a lot of these, quote unquote, um, low, low risk, uh, long only type products in Germany, a lot of them actually carry quite a lot of uh, load in terms of fees and mm-hmm. rebates being paid and all of that good stuff. So uh, probably... Even more impossible for the end investor to make any money from them. So uh, it uh, it's just interesting. Uh, and here they always talk about how our industry is charging way too many fees and you know not delivering on their promises and all of that stuff. Uh, so I should have but taken should... a
2: photo of an ad which I saw yesterday when I walked over to my one of my favorite coffee shops in Munich. It's like there's a, I'm walking by a bank. I'm not going to mention the name, and it says. Um, 1.5 percent annualized yield on on cash 1.5 percent on cash daily availability right you go like right. well in, in in what currency is this in south african yeah. rand and brazilian real what is it no in euros and So really yeah. in euros 1.5 percent where's the trick right <laughs> so there's the asterisks of course and then there's some small printings says, well you have to open a securities account uh, for the same value um, and the annual fee of your securities account is at least two percent plus any commissions you so you know there's there's the carrot come on oh yeah uh, and of course these are banks your money.
1: these are banks that are regulated yet they're allowed to put out uh, advertising like this and in our industry we're not allowed to advertise anything not even our real track records um, how about that for uh, for um, exactly yeah transparency anyways speaking of transparency it's been a volatile week it's been a wild. Right on Wall Street. So let's dig into it, Moritz. Um, what stood out in terms of markets? We talked a little bit about it, but I think there were a few more markets. I'm pretty sure that stood out. And um, how did how did um, how did your trend following strategy cope with all of this?
2: I had a good week, I must say. I know you and I have been on the phone uh, yesterday, preparing a bit for today's conversation. I told you, well, I'm not entirely sure if it's. Uh, if it's positive or negative, it's kind of like flattish. It feels like it, right? Um, but then this morning, I, I ran the numbers, and I'm surprised, uh, and I'm happy that I'm up 1.67% for this week, uh, even though it was a very volatile week. Year-to-date, 1.97% up, and of course, the long bond positions have been really good, as well as the long short-term interest rates precious metals including platinum this week which didn't work last week but this week did work on the on the long side short the nifty short crude all of that worked really well last week i got kicked out of uh, many of my long equity positions so that was a good thing it it meant that i didn't suffer from them this week i know the s&p had a slightly positive week but many of the other markets like euro stocks and dax they have been down this week and um What did I lose from? I lost from uh, being short lean hawks, short the Japanese again, long sugar and long rice. That detracted from my performance, but overall, not a bad week. I uh, got a few new positions. Well, one new position, uh, uh, I'm increasing my long position in the bubble contract. It's another bond future, German five-year bond future. And I'm exiting um, the... Australian equity market, the spies, and my long position in Mexican peso and South African rand.
1: So, you know, this is always interesting to hear, right? Um, because I'm sure people, some people would uh, shake their head and basically say, what is more? It's buying more bubbles at these levels. We just talked about how negative they're yielding in Germany. And and this is actually a great example as to why trend following, for most people, is so hard, right? Because, you're buying at a time where probably every bone in your body is screaming the opposite. <laughs> so so I think that's a great example of uh why discipline and leaving your emotions parked away from your trading uh is super important and uh and, and 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 of course we I think a lot of people will remember um maybe only I don't know 6 18 months ago or something like that I would say where yields were basically backing up. US yields on the ten year were just above three percent and, and there are a lot of talk about now we have this runaway um you know rise in interest rates and very few people in you know would come out and say, Well actually, you know boys, I think this is going to new all time lows. So it also shows you how unpredictable these things are. So um yeah. Good they for you really Brady. are
2: I had uh, one or the other bone screaming and squeeching in my body this week, as you say, Niels. Um, <laughs> and, I think uh, we know,
1: I know where we're going I now.
2: know where we're going. Confes- so
1: confession I, uh, week.
2: Confession, sin, sin committed. Um, well, I'm not sure if it's a sin, but I did a discretionary trade, which I guess some other people will be interested in hearing about. I did the discretionary trade, not in Tesla, not in options, which is kind of like outside of my trend following portfolio, but I I did a discretionary trade inside of my trend following portfolio. And the reason I did it is the following last week, as I've said, I've lost a lot of the equity exposure and my portfolio got more concentrated and the concentration was very much on the bonds. And the bonds have been moving so much that they have been starting to really domino- dominate the daily p So I've reduced bond long positions by 10%. So not much. I'm still very, very long bonds. Um, but of course, uh, bonds continue to move higher after I've uh, taken those profits, <laughs> right? Uh, and yet I feel more comfortable with the position I have now uh, as the risk is more evenly distributed. And so i've done that and uh and that's that
1: <laughs> and of course this would have been a great topic to talk to uh to jerry about because actually i mean i think this is where uh, the three of us and our approach to trend following is a little bit different right because you and jerry as as, as you admit to from time to time will do these discretionary risk reduction trades right yes. yet on our side it's built into the strategy. It's part of our daily risk management um, that we do look for, um, you know, uh, changes in positioning uh, of the overall portfolio and, and if the risk goes, uh, you know, changes dramatically such as it could be because we are reducing positions in another uh, area that has, a you know, a, a negatively correlated effect with uh, with other positions or whatever it might be. Then all of this is built into our risk management model, and, and, and that will then just trigger certain, uh, you know, position reductions automatically. And this is how we do it. There's no right or wrong, but it's it's interesting that you're thinking the same thing, um, and and obviously in this case you you acted upon it. So uh, yeah, nothing wrong with that in my opinion. Um, it's um, yeah, it's part of it's part of the process of being a risk manager. You have different uh, ways of doing it. Um, for sure now on our side I think we uh, probably did similar to you this week Uh, we're not up uh, for the year we're just slightly down still for the year but uh, certainly up for the month of March Um, and uh, for us it was an interesting week of course bonds were by far the dominating sector 30 year bonds uh, the dominating market Uh, we only trade one 30 year bond which is the US one um, gold did well, um, but we actually also made money in equities because, as you rightly say, they didn't go down and make new lows. So, uh, so our long stance in some of the equities uh, did okay. Made a little bit of money in in volatility. Uh, the big detractor for us, and of course, energies did did okay. Um, the big detractor for us as well were some of the commodities you mentioned, and 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 in particular, currencies. I mean. The weakening dollar uh, is kind of against the uh, the bigger trend, so uh, so that cost a bit of money. But overall, positive week, uh, positive month so far, and uh, no drama. Um, and um, and we'll see how it all plays out. I mean, it will it will be interesting because there's been so much talk uh, about uh, trend followers uh, not uh, living up to their mandate of crisis alpha. That critique has come from both the outside, but also the inside, where I think certain short-term managers have been pointing that out. However, I will say, when I did see the final numbers uh, for the month of February, I actually had expected a bit more from the short-term guys, because I thought the last week of Feb was really, really a, a great environment for them, but actually there were... Um, at least the bigger ones that I follow, they didn't make money in the last week of February. They may still have made money in February, but they actually lost a little bit in that last week where they, you know, probably uh, was expected to make uh, some money. But it just shows you that with, with even with the best intentions and the way you design your systems, um, there's just no way of knowing exactly how it all plays out in the future. It's always going to be a little bit different to what you've seen in the past data. And therefore, your results are going to be a little bit different. But when you look out and you extrapolate over many years, then I think that these, uh, at least the longer term, uh, medium to longer term strategies, they are really um, quite stable in there. In their pattern uh, how they react and how they perform and um, and so that's what there should be useful not trying to time it
2: yeah timing it is impossible I guess and I think you're right the longer-term strategies they really look very nice uh, on the long-term chart I think I've mentioned it before I am invested with one of those short-term CTAs the name shall remain unmentioned but they did perform positively um, over the past fortnight but Like you say, Niels, not to the extent that it would be like kicking the ball out of the park, right? Um, I mean, we've had a couple of very interesting uh, funds, like the long volatility funds. The numbers that we have seen now that are coming out, I mean, some of them had had 25% up weeks. So some of those funds have been doing really well. Those are not the short-term funds. They're not trading volatility instruments, right? So they're just trading shorter-term trends and maybe different styles than we do. Uh, but they tend to react uh, quicker and 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 perform better during those periods where markets change really quickly. Because yeah. you know we're we're always delayed with our way of trading. Um, so yeah, they they've made a bit of money. I I'm not complaining. Uh, they are uncorrelated to what I'm doing with my trend following portfolio and. This remains the reason I like them. Speaking about oh, short-term absolutely. guys, yeah. Yeah. I want to mention it again. Uh, Andrew Strassman, 40in20out.com. Uh, he has a research portfolio. It's not traded live. I had him actually on the phone this week. We we spoke, uh, I think, on Monday night. And um, But this, this uh, performance or this portfolio, this program, which is kind of like turtle-like, uh, like the... Former it's the original turtle original rules. Turtle so to speak. Yeah, rules yep. exactly. Massively up for the past two weeks. I mean, like five percent up days are are not rare. So um, yeah, really, really strong performance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that shows you uh, a number of things. Um, one of them, the importance of diversification, not just in you know um, the 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 timeframes that we trade, right, but also. The markets we trade and all of those things uh, even though I think there has been um, uh, over the years I think some people have you know thought that if you have one trend follower that's enough they look the same they have more or less you know high correlation but high correlation doesn't mean similar performance by any stretch of the imagination yes. uh, so uh, so th- th- that's why it's important and I think um, and I've had many short-term managers on on the podcast over the years and um, and they do a great job for for what they have designed their systems to do and um, and and vice versa so does the medium to long term trend followers in terms of what we design our systems to do I think uh, so good stuff um let's try and see if we can do you have any tweets that you noticed this week obviously we don't have our our, our favorite Twitter uh, person on today. So, um, was there anything that you particularly noticed in Twitter land as such? Um, otherwise, we, we have a free range to discuss whatever we feel like. Of course, we have a few questions uh, as well. Um, but if there were a tweet or two that you noticed, we can try and we're, keep We're definitely tradition.
2: badly missing our Twitter master, that's for sure. Yeah. Um. I uh, I'm not as active on Twitter as as uh, Jerry is, but one of the things that I spotted because it's still fresh in memory is um, uh, is is something that has to do with the volatility markets. So the VIX. I mean, obviously there's a lot of movement in volatility markets, not only in the U.S. as measured by VIX and VIX futures, but also in Europe. I mean, we have the V stocks futures, which uh, are used to trade volatility on Euro stocks, and you know all sorts of other instruments around the world. And um, so first off, the um, term structure for volatility futures, as you can imagine, is uh, in backwardation. Um, but what has also happened is that... The,
1: Maybe you should explain that.
2: Uh, oh, backwardation means mind. that yeah. the, uh, the shorter-dated futures contract is trading more expensive than contracts that have explorations further out in the future, um, farther dated. And and this is consistent across the curve, but also the first week's futures contract trades below the S&P realized volatility at the moment, which is not what is usually the case. And it just shows, I mean, the past fortnight, we've had three or 4% up and down days in the S&P and in other equity indices, and they were kind of like the norm. You know, uh, a month ago, we would have been shocked, you know, if if those markets moved by more than 1.5% a day or something like that, right? And all of a sudden, boom, three four percent up and down ranges is um is is every day's business and um actually quite funny i mean this morning when i was uh going to our local bakery store to get the rolls for for the family you know i i bumped into a friend of mine and he's in financial markets and uh He's like, oh, it's like he's shell-shocked. This is horrible. Like, the, You know, the last two weeks and uh, the DAX is down 15% and uh, it's a nightmare and everybody's losing money. And I was like, well, you know, I don't want to tell him that I had an up week. Eventually I told him that I had an up week, but I said, look, I mean, we've kind of like been waiting for not necessarily markets crashing, but for stuff happening. I mean, those... Low vol markets, nothing moving, no trends, really just grinding stuff out. It was kind of like this almost boring environment. It's For me as a trend follower, yeah, I mean, sure, when things start moving, maybe I have a down week and I'm down 4%, but I don't mind markets being more volatile and more active and more disturbed by people trading left, right and center and, you know, bits and offers flying around. Let's do it. I mean... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it gets my juices flowing.
1: What What was his response, uh, other than maybe that then it's your turn to pay for the roles?
2: Yeah, no, he didn't say that. He paid, he he's, he's got enough money to pay for his own roles. <laughs> you know, being a long only guy hasn't been a bad thing the past couple of years. So he probably has more right. money than me. Uh, but you know, he knows that I'm 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 following trends. It's just many people don't you know really see how that works, and uh, they don't see that we actually like volatility. Oh, there's one thing, talking about Twitter, Tom Basso. Tom Basso posted something on Twitter, Um, I don't have it in front of me right now, so people need to uh, search for him, but he posted a chart on Twitter, I think yesterday, and that's a scatter plot that shows trend following making more money when the range, the daily range of markets increases. So take the daily range as a proxy for volatility, right? it just goes to show that when stuff starts moving and the volatility is there and there is you know market movement that is a good thing for us which i you find understand? is logical because if there's zero volatility and prices do not move then nobody makes money so we need this energy in the
1: markets uh, but let me ask you a question yep. then, Moritz. I mean, I wonder, do you think it's real volatility or is it autocorrelation, right? Because there is a difference. We can have volatility if things doesn't, don't really sure. move, right? We
2: as trend followers need autocorrelation.
1: Exactly, yeah. So I wonder whether that's what the chart really suggests is that you you have direction and volatility, What? No, recall, it, it, autocorrelation. It,
2: yeah, it, it plots the range, so it doesn't okay. plot any autocorrelation. But I know, I mean, the okay. autocorrelation will then, of course, result in a trend, which is what you and I like. We, we'd like yeah. to see that. But oftentimes, uh, periods of higher vol, when there's a regime shift from a lower volatility regime, which is kind of like what we had the past couple of years, into something that is now a higher volatility regime, that changes correlations and drives autocorrelation to the positive side. Right, so trends tend to emerge more frequently and in a more stable fashion. More, more surprisingly, when it is ignited by volatility, it needs a volatility shock for the for the train to start moving. Right, otherwise yeah. it just stays mean reverting and range bound.
1: Yeah, we need the initial explosion as when you fire a rocket and then the rocket goes exactly.
2: Off. And and we may be we may be getting our fingers burnt by the initial explosion because sometimes we're on the wrong side of the or most of the times we're on the wrong side of the equity trend by that point. You know, something happens and we're still long equities and it takes us a while before we um, flip sides. But, you know, um, after a while, if really the shock is so substantial and all the correlation starts to materialize and change and the trends are there, then, you know, it may take us a week or two or maybe even three uh, depending on the speeds that we trade. But eventually we will be there and then we will make money.
1: Yeah and I, just to bring it back to kind of now is um you know I think for those people who may not have experienced this a lot um you know uh, the last couple of weeks have been good a, a good example of that we've seen directional moves not just in equities but in bonds and in energy uh yes. you know so and 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 precious metals so this is what we're referring to when we talk about these things and this is also why I found this, and I can't remember how, uh, who I should credit it uh, to, unfortunately, but the, I saw this um, uh, paper a couple of weeks ago where they talked about the fact that that even though intuitively you would think that if you want to protect an equity-heavy uh, portfolio, you should find managers that trades similar sectors but could also do the short side, so people who have maybe a financials focused uh, portfolio with uh, equities and fixed income and, and maybe currencies, but uh, because they would be really targeted, later, focused on, on on making money uh, when these um, markets start to move. But what this research paper found was actually because, it, as we've just seen, volatility explodes to some extent in these markets. So as, as risk managers, we have to contract our exposure overall and if it's a very highly correlated portfolio, we're going to detract our risk budget incredibly, um, you know, very quickly and, and by quite a lot. But if you have this more diversified portfolio with markets that are less correlated, but can also go and have a, a suddenly a trending state, then actually the overall output from those portfolios have shown in the past at least to be the ones delivering delivering the best protection, the best returns, Uh, during the crises Um, so I was a little bit surprised to see the data like that because um, you know even for I mean having lived it for so many years um, I hadn't thought about this particular point but the fact that we are diversified actually does allow us to keep higher risk exposures and and therefore uh, when the environment is right uh, make more, more money for our clients.
2: That's right. And you've yeah. just mentioned crude oil. Crude oil, interestingly enough, had the worst day yesterday on Friday. Today is Saturday. Yesterday on Friday, it had the worst day since 2014. I think it has a down almost 10% day yesterday, settlement to settlement. So stuff is moving. Gold's up substantially. Yeah. Oil's down. Bonds up. Equities, well, most of the equities actually have been down this week. Uh, I've just had a look at the DAX. The DAX lost another 2.5%. I know the S&P has been a pos- had had a positive week, but uh, most of the equity market's still trending lower. Yeah. So, um, well, I am, with that being
1: said, looking forward to next week. As I <laughs> <Yes>. always do. <laughs> yes, we always do. That's true, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing that's not moving right now seems to be people uh, wanting to travel, um, oh, yes. and, and other things and I think uh, again we touched upon it but uh, as, as people listening to us already know we tend to repeat ourselves quite a lot but I will say that what makes this different from what we've seen in the last few years is the fact that it's starting to have an impact on people's behavior you see that already you see the supermarkets being uh, you know emptied You you see people stop traveling you see airlines cutting capacity by you know up to 50 percent, which is dramatic <laughs> um, and so again going back to the point what is it really that trend following has always been deep down uh doing for investors and that is you know it's a strategy that is at the end of the day rooted in human behavior that's what we you know the, the it's fear and greed to some extent it's these it's these uh, parabolic move, like we've just seen in long dated uh, U.S. fixed income markets, um, and that is human behavior. It's human. It's fear that drives the markets to suddenly do something like that. And the only ones, I think, frankly, who can um, make money in such a market are very few people, like. Our friend at Real Vision, Raul Pal, who called this a uh, massive move in fixed income markets, or it's the systematic guys who just don't have any emotions behind it, but they have a process that they follow.
2: I agree with that. I think we should get Raul on uh, one of those days uh, and speak with him. I always find it very enjoyable to listen to him and his macro analyses. And Essentially, most of the things that happen on Real Vision are a, a added value and benefit to me.
1: It's thought-provoking, um, like uh, some of the p- pieces of research that we talk about. Um, and, um, and, and that's always a good thing uh, to make us think. Um, are there any more tweets? We can do whatever we want uh, today, Morris. Um, but are there any more tweets you want to bring up now or topics? Uh, um, you talked about some, some Vic stuff happening yesterday afternoon as well. That was a bit unusual.
2: Oh, yes, Uh, I spotted this, and I've read a few things about it. So um, yesterday, on Friday, uh, going into the close, um, the VIX index spiked substantially higher, moved higher. I'm just trying to put a chart up here. But I think it moved all the way up to 54, which would be the highest print, or if if that is the, the print, it's the highest, yeah, it's the highest print since Lehman. And if people look at an intraday chart, what they see is there's like this squeeze all the way from 46 to 54 in almost no time. And people report that as being, you know, some whatever the kind of... Systemic risk. Yeah, Yeah. like some short gamma squeeze, right? So somebody had had to trade gamma on, uh, on Wix futures, which squeezed that thing higher. And then what happened, once those trades were out of the system... Uh, at the top at 54 it plunged 14 points down to 40 in like uh, 30 minutes that's a massive fall move right and uh, it just shows i mean there's there's all those systemic rules-based players in the market with short gamma full control risk parity this that and the other thing that need to get stuff done on the close and uh It's, again, one of those examples where you see it happening right there. And um, I don't think that's a good thing.
1: No, and speaking about systemic risk, I mean, I did notice that I think it's the uh, European Bank Index uh, that broke down below its uh, lowest low we've ever seen. Kind of uh, not uh, from a technical point of view, uh, even though we don't trade it like that. And we don't trade it at all, actually. But just from a uh, point of interest, um, it does highlight... Uh, the risk that we may now face and of course we know that negative interest rates uh, destroys the financial system or banking system slowly. Um, so even though people are pouring money into safe haven um, fixed income markets, um, what they're doing at the same time is probably imposing even more risk to a a, a fragile um, financial system already and and at the end of the day, <coughs> We saw fifty basis points cut in in um in the u s right and that's always been the, the you know that's always been kind of their first um way of trying to mitigate a risk is just to cut interest rates right but what's interesting thing about this crisis is that they can cut two hundred basis points, but it's not gonna put people back in the planes, for example. I mean people don't wanna travel regardless of what the fed funds are, I think. And so there are different dynamics uh, this time around. Um, and and we'll just see whether central banks are coming to a point where actually their usual tactics have stopped working. Um, they'll probably come up with something different then. Um, as Jerry suggested a couple of weeks ago, why don't they just buy the S&P, like the Bank of Japan buying stocks and ETFs and whatever? Who knows what they're going to do? But... But it's not a sign of strength that we're seeing all these uh, games being played by central banks. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of weakness, in my opinion. Um, and when you combine all of this with the fact that when you look at the total volume of trade worldwide, in the last, I don't know, 30 years, twice before last year, twice before last year, did the trade volume actually contract on a year-by-year basis? I think it was 1982 and 2009, two bad recessions. Um, And it did. It started doing it again last year. So this is the third time we're seeing that, and every time it's resulted in, even though it's a small sample size, I admit, but uh, it has resulted in a really bad um, economic environment for a while. And I think US interest rates are reflecting that already with the last couple of weeks' move. And um, so... Let's and this is even and the data I'm referring to it doesn't even take into account coronavirus and all the effects that that's had. So we'll see how that uh, what that does to profitability yeah. and share buybacks and and yeah. uh, all that good stuff.
2: Yeah. Oh, share buybacks and you know credit, corporate credit, all of that has been uh, getting hammered um, last week. But look, we all agree interest rates are not a cure for a virus. Central banks are not the vaccine that still needs to be invented for that virus, right? And it feels to me that the central banks are kind of like in the final stages of a very long chess game. It's a chess game that has been going on for a long time. Now there's only a couple of of figures on the board. And like you say, U.S. interest rates are approaching the zero bound. What are they going to do then if we get there? And if, you know, the system continues as it is right now, will there be helicopter money, bailout programs for pension funds? What is it going to be? We don't know what it is, but it it seems to be very unlikely that the the Fed is going to put their interest rate into substantially negative territory. Maybe I'm wrong there, yeah. but something... Trump
1: wants that. He was saying, oh, we should get there like everyone yeah. else. And
2: and they, <laughs> look, I mean... I, I have no problems with being wrong. I'm wrong most of the time, anyways, as you guys know, listening to us. So uh, I'm I'm a master of being wrong. Uh, maybe the ten-year U.S. is going to be minus two percent at some point, and we'll just think that's normal. I, I I still have difficulties imagining that. I that's why I'm saying it, it. may be the final stages of the chess game, whereby they say, "No, we're not going there. We're doing other stuff. We're just printing money." Where, you know. Um, issuing pension obligation bonds and we're bailing out the pension systems or we're just dropping money onto people and um, let's see what that creates.
0: It is normally
2: extremely destructive uh, for any... It it destroys the fiat currency if that happens one way or the other, right? Which is why, again, just be considerate with your portfolio and what exposures you have, right? Um, A little bit of gold doesn't hurt. A little bit of Bitcoin probably doesn't hurt. Trend following, doesn't and a whole
1: hurt. lot of trend following, and a whole mm-hmm. lot of
2: trend following. <laughs> the, the, the the thing that you know crosses my mind sometimes with the trend following is you know you and I, we may be we may be getting the thing right, we may be nailing it and make a lot of money with all those trends, but it may not be worth that much if that fiat currency gets destroyed, and maybe regulations change so that. We cannot take it out of our clearing firms. And, uh, you know, you know what tricks, I don't know what tricks are going to be played on us with the counterparties that we're being exposed to and, and the taxes that we then need to pay on those gains. It, it Like I say, that the risk is also, we may, be, we may be hitting the ball out of the park, but the net return after all taxes are paid and all the friction costs and destroyed fiat currency may not be worth that much.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that is, of course, the that is the risk and, and, and the other risk is, and of course, when you say we're making a lot of money, I mean, we're doing that for our clients and that's great. But um, the, the, the other thing that is relevant in that sense is that now that we have kind of a few years back, uh, the central banks and politicians decided to abolish recessions. And so they've avoided that, at least technically speaking, uh, for quite a while now. And 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 you kind of wonder whether, okay, by skipping a few recessions, are we going to go straight into a depression uh, and and not even have a recession before that happens? So, that's that's the worrying part. Uh, and of course, that is what Ray Dalio, um, you know, has been warning about for a couple of years that we could be heading into something that we hadn't. Seen and that it looked very similar to the 1930s and uh, you know i was referencing some some inflation numbers uh, from 1928 to 1942 and uh, clearly that was not a great economic uh, time for anyone Uh, and it wasn't a great time for stock investors uh, by any stretch of the imagination Um, and and of course none of us have, have really experienced that and most of us have experienced these four decades of just Incredibly financial uh, markets. Uh, if you were a bond or equity investor, and could withstand a little bit of volatility from time to time, and um, I, you know, I, I, I just worry. I can't help worrying a little bit that that we're just going to see a cycle change, and um, and we have to get used to something different. The good thing, and it's this, is not to keep pounding on 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 trend following. So let's just say the good thing is. There are strategies where it doesn't really matter what the direction of the market is and, and I think those strategies will be important. But while we wait for that to happen, let's uh, jump in and, and take some questions, uh, Moritz. Yes. Um, the first one is from uh, Dante. Dante says, hello, my question is how you guys manage to track your portfolios. What software do you use to see what percent you're up or down for the week, for the month, etc., etc.? i kind of think i know what your answer is going to be more but nevertheless let's hear it
2: yeah uh you'd be surprised so personally what i do is i get broker statements on a daily basis they're delivered automatically to my inbox and um this is machine readable format right so uh i read that stuff out into a spreadsheet and uh there it is in the spreadsheet every day. There is a date, then there is a column which has the equity and the open trade equity and yada, yada, yada. This and the other thing. And this is how I track performance.
1: Yeah. I mean, Excel is obviously a very good choice for that. Um, on our side, we built our own internal software. So we have bespoke software that tracks the PL second by second, but it's not needed really for, uh, for most investors, of course. Um, so. Uh, but yeah, you can do a lot in Microsoft Excel uh, Dan. Oh, so uh,
2: yeah, I, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm doing all the trading out of Excel. Of course, I do have software that you know runs and governs my systematic trading system, which does have stats and P numbers and exposures and you know all those uh, type of things. I'm actually just uh, trying out a new system, uh, which was recommended to me by our friend Seth. I playing around with that, didn't have much time yet to do it, but it looks pretty cool. So I have something that's similar to that, but custom built for my needs. Um, but like the P&L recording um, is just uh, my own P&L spreadsheet.
1: Yeah, so before we start recommending any software, we definitely need to get them as a sponsor, right? Before we Exactly,
2: start so the name them, yeah. shall yeah. remain So We can't say anything.
1: We, it's, exactly. Exactly, we, <laughs> cannot, we cannot reveal <laughs> yeah. who you're testing right now. But there we are. Speaking of earlier... Our good friend Andrew, who runs the 40 in, 20 out portfolio, Um, Andrew has a question for us. On a scale between one, statistically unimportant, and two, critically important, how would you rate the effect of pyramiding within your trend-following strategies? That is to say, contrasting the trading techniques of, one, increasing exposure with add-ons as profitable trades develop, tightening dynamic trading protective stops, on the entire position accordingly, or two, entering into uh, your enti- ah, entering into your into your entire position at the beginning of the trade, then taking piecemeal profits over time, be- depending on risk reward, um, volatility, and other characteristics. Um, I know it's a great question. Um, let me take a stab at this before uh, or first. Um, so I think of it a little bit differently, Andrew. Um, so first of all, on on our side, um, we do build up positions slowly. Um, you know, you could go to your full position much quicker. You could take it in one step, you could take it in two or three or four steps, right? The risk you have when doing so is when you go through these range trading periods where you just get stopped in and then retrace get stopped out in and out in and out and if you manage to get onto a full position every time it can cost you a lot of money in a short space of time so that's i think is the risk of doing that if you did it and you just had lots of trends that were right up out of the gate every time then of course you would make probably more money by doing so because you're getting you're getting full positions on very quickly um, so I so so building your position up slowly for me, it's nothing to do with pyramiding. It's basically using different speeds, different time frames, um, and building up your confidence in the overall trend of the market uh, more slowly. Um, and I think for most managers, certainly for the larger managers, I would imagine that that's how it's being done now. You did mention that if you enter your position, um, you know, in one go, you can take piecemeal profits, etc., etc. I think if you look at trades on a trade-by-trade basis, uh, like the old turtle styles that, of course, you uh, are very familiar with, Andrew, then um, I... um, I think, I think of that as kind of the... Um, and, and I know uh, uh, Moritz and Jerry, of course, are doing that. I think of that as one style of trend following, uh, probably the original style of doing trend following. I think the way we do things on our side is probably a little bit more statistical in its approach. So we look more on the whole portfolio at all times. We don't look at trade-by-trade trade basis. We don't look at how many basis points risk did you take for that trade we look at what is the exposure to that market as a whole and how does it fit into the overall portfolio risk that we're willing to take and so on and so forth so so I think there are different styles of uh risk management that plays into how you would also uh, take your signals uh, and your exits so um, so I just think there are different ways of doing it and you don't really know which one is best in advance right uh, so I think it has to be, you have to take into account your own comfort level uh, and strength in terms of uh, your your skill set, um, and maybe you want to mix them up a little bit uh, to to have a bit of both because they can be quite different in terms of performance. Um, so those are just my thoughts, Morris. I don't know what you what you think about these things. Obviously, you might be a little bit closer to to what. Uh, Andrew was referring to.
2: No, it's along the same lines. Um, I see it as a as a means of diversification. I mean, as you know, Andrew, uh, a lot of times you get the the two hundred day high is the same as the one hundred day high, and you know, even though I'm uh, diversifying across different speeds, I may get the full position size on it just once we go, and sometimes I do not. Um, that being said, I think to my system, it is an important feature to be diversified across different speeds and not have just to focus on one i mean as you know when you plot the effectiveness of um of the time frames that you trade there's normally kind of like a sweet spot area it's not just the one point that you want to trade you want to have a couple of things going for you so that different market environments uh, can work for you so that's what i'm doing but i'm also not overdoing it so i'm not trading you know 20 different speeds you could do that but i I don't do that. I don't I, I don't see the added value as being massive and adding more and more time frames because they correlate so much to each other, right? So a couple, like a handful, different speeds, uh, that is that is good enough for me. Sometimes that leads to pyramiding into position. And then I like the fact that it's doing that because it diversifying my entries, and I also have um, different. Uh, target exits with those positions then so also have diversified exits so it makes the entire system for me I believe a bit more stable
1: but you know you you use the word pyramiding but I don't think what we're really doing is pyramiding because pyramiding to me is that you're using some open profits already uh, to add more risk but I actually think what we do is that that. we have predetermined exactly we have predetermined risk budgets that we want to take and we take those you know as they come we're not yeah, we're not building up position and as that makes money, we say, Oh yeah, let's take some more risk because we're already got I mean, that's a different yeah. approach.
2: I mean we uh, we hear from you know the summaries that we read about the great traders you know, Drakenbill of Soros and um whoever you want to, you know, put into this bracket, you often hear them saying that you really have to push for the trade. When you have when you have a trade that shows open profit, this is when you should be going for the juggler and and just push, 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 and take more risk and you know, ride that trade. That may be true. In fact, it is probably true, not maybe true. I think those guys, you know, it, it 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 works. It's just not the way our systems are primed and designed. I don't have a rule that says if open profit on a position is X then put more risk on. I don't do that. My system would wait for the next breakout and then take a position as per the uh, risk appetite that, I, that I've given my system.
1: Yeah, I mean, makes perfect sense. Speaking of risk, uh, position sizing, etc., cetera, et cetera, we have a question from Mike. Uh, Mike Ripes writes in, um, uh, hope you are well. I heard Jerry say he sizes positions inverse to volatility on the replay of the 2019 year review. Could you please go into a little more detail on this point? How does correlation affect sizing when you size inverse to volatility? Thanks very much for your thoughtful answer. Do you want to start with this or great topic. Uh, great question. Yeah. Especially about the
2: correlation, which I'll uh, touch on a bit later. Uh, Sizing positions inverse to volatility. This is uh, one of the things that you can do. Jerry and I, we do not do that. We do something that is very, very similar to volatility. So we use what is called an average true range. Um, If you put average true range into your Google search engine, it'll pop up and it'll show you how to calculate it it is something that is like volatility, right? But what we're doing is um, the markets which have a greater average true range, which means on average, on a day, they're moving more than other markets, right? They have a greater range. Um, they have more volatility in terms of P L that they would contribute. Those markets, we give a smaller position size uh, than markets that have a small smaller average to range or less volatility so in that regard yes we're sizing positions inversely to volatility to say technically technically correct we're sizing it inversely to ATR now when we do this on a position or on a market by market basis at that point I can only speak uh, for me I cannot speak for Jerry but at that point um I do not take into account the correlation to any other market. I do not do that. Um, Now, what one could do is you could now build your portfolio and have all those inversely ATR-sized positions on and then look at the correlation characteristics of their portfolio and you may then decide to do something with your position sizes across the portfolio depending on how correlations and also therefore how volatility of their portfolio has changed oftentimes this is done by target vol, or vol controlling funds and i guess Niels with your value at risk type of approach it will also probably play a role um, but it doesn't do for me so i deliberately decided for my way of trading that I'm looking to diversify my portfolio ex ante up front as much as I can by trading really diverse markets, many diverse markets, as, as many as I can, and uh, and then take the positions inversely to ATR and let them run.
1: Yeah, I and I think, again... This is also why it's important to have different types of trend followers in your portfolio if you're an institutional or even a high net worth individual um, who decides to actually allocate to managers rather than doing it yourself. Because that is definitely one key difference between how Moritz does trend following and how we do trend following. We definitely want to take into account on an ongoing basis changes in correlation between positions uh, so it may not be something that uh, you know so it's an ongoing process it's not something that only happens at entry um, uh, last week was a great example or the last couple of weeks was a great example where uh, reduction in, in parts of the portfolio namely the equities um, could also lead to uh, other reductions because if you don't I mean Moritz talked about it earlier he, he did it intuitively um, because he felt that suddenly bonds were dominating his his PL. Um, we do it systematically um, because uh, again we have certain uh, we have a statistically uh, or a statistical based risk framework that we uh, want to adhere to every single day and 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 one of those consequences are that a big shift in position uh, exposure in one sector might lead to other changes simply for the reason that if you don't, you end up having a much bigger, risk in your portfolio because there's no offset there's no correlation benefit you've lost it so um yeah different ways of doing things but a great question mike appreciate it A uh, final question per se uh, today uh is from uh, james and i'm just trying to pull it up here um james writes um Exciting markets again this week. I was curious whether you find that certain markets have a tendency to trend for longer than others. I fully appreciate you take each market with the same unit of risk each time, which I understand makes things more robust, better risk management. But that aside, but for instance, do you see currency markets trending for longer or... Uh, in less erratic ways than other markets. So it's more of a kind of a market-specific type question. I'll let um, Moritz come on in a second with his view, but just as an overall um, uh, response, James, um, from our point of view and what we truly believe in uh, is that all markets has the same ability to trend. And actually, in the very long run, but I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years, in the very long run, we think they will be able to produce the same performance. Uh, you know, So, that doesn't mean you want to trade the same number of markets in each sector because you can't. There's only one gold market, but there might be 10 f- fixed income markets. right? So, so, it doesn't mean you can have a portfolio of just one market from each sector, or you should have that. Not at all. But... It just means on a market-by-market market basis, I don't think you can necessarily argue that in the very long run, certain markets should be better than others, even if we all know that fixed income in the last X number of years have been the better-performing sector without a shadow of a doubt. But, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be the best sector in the next 20 years, right? So so we f- we find that treating all markets equal uh, is a good approach uh, it's not optimized in any way shape or form of course you can say that every time you make a decision in terms of which markets to include you are making a subjective decision and that's absolutely true certain certain things in what we do in in, in terms of research um, you know has to be based on, on a human decision but uh, other than that that's that's about it so Yeah, I don't know uh, what you think, uh, if there are certain markets. Certainly, when we look at statistics, when we look at attributions in the last 10, 15, 20 years, of course, there's been some markets that have been way better than others. I mean, and there's been markets that have not made money for 20 years. But does it mean that they won't make money the next 20 years? I don't know. What are your thoughts, Moritz?
2: I agree with you fully, Niels. Um, And like you, I mean... You know, I could say I'm, I'm trading since a bit more than 20 years with, with those type of markets, but this is only one environment. And the easy backtest is to go back to, say, the early 90s or the late 80s or the mid 80s, right? So, but still, it's only 35 years and you need to put that into context only because in those years, the bonds have been showing such massive trends in some of the currency markets as well and so nice trends, Right. It doesn't mean, just like you say, that between 2020 and 2030, the bond markets are going to have the same trends. I mean, in fact, they could be very trendless for a couple of years uh, from where they are right now. We just don't know that. They they may be the worst markets for us to trade for the next 10 years, and maybe the commodity markets will for once become better markets to trade. Um, Also, my observation is that some of the commodity markets, or most of the commodity markets, they tend to have some shorter term trends, or they're more like reversal like. They're, they're not as stable, but still, they're very good trends for me to exploit. Um, but that is not to say that, you know, maybe in the next 10 years, corn is going to have a very nice long term trend. I, I do not know that, but I want to give my system the freedom uh, to, and, and, you know, the expectational freedom to go for those type of things and not precondition it. On a type of trend, or a certain speed, or a certain market.
1: Kind of a visual picture of of of, of this discussion is that, for example, if you take something like gold, right, the price of gold in two thousand, year two thousand, was around two hundred dollars, and then it had this really massive trend all the way up to two thousand eleven. I think it went up to nineteen hundred dollars, right. And then it kind of started trading in a range for a couple of years. And then it did break down and, and started somewhat of a downtrend. But really, from 2014 all the way to pretty much the end of last year, so five years, it was trading in a big range between 1,000 at the low and a kind of 1,400 at the high, which for a longer term trend follower is not great whatsoever. But who's to say that it hasn't just broken out of, of, of a key level and might go to 5,000? Who knows? I mean, I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying it could happen. But it just means also that you could... You, and same with bonds. I mean, there will have been periods with bonds in the last 10, 20 years where there were maybe one or two years of just range trading and it did nothing. And then suddenly you get these parabolic uh, market moves. Um, and, and, and And the only way to profit from them is to take every single trade because you just never know which one is gonna be that big trend. Um, So um, I think in many ways, Moritz, I think the last couple of weeks have been incredibly informative. I think they've been very good at visualizing the importance of one, keeping trend following as a core position in your portfolio um, because it's not behaving like equities at the moment. but also why it's important to have a diversified portfolio because it could be a very small subset of, of that diversified portfolio that is pulling uh, the returns uh, as it has been also in the last couple of weeks with fixed income. There might be some other return drivers coming along uh, the, for the ride later on, but you know, you just need to keep a really open mind. And I think what you said earlier on, which I've also... Um, uh, I think we may have talked about it before, and but I think it's so important. The people in this world who are the stewards of other people's money, who has the ability, the knowledge, the skills to make these type of investment decisions, to include these type of strategies, they're the ones who are not doing it. They're the ones who don't have the will to do it. And that's, that is troublesome.
2: Exactly. They do the bonds, they do the bonds, and the bonds, and a bit of equities, and that's it for the most part.
1: And then they go further and further out the or credit. private curve equity, yeah, you... credit curve, exactly. Yeah, credit... yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why not All have products. some illiquid stuff <laughs> yeah, have some illiquid stuff as well. Um Maurice, what else do you want to bring up uh, in today's those were the questions, um, by the way. Um let me quickly just run through and um, then we can go back and talk about something else if we want, but in terms of the performance as of Thursday evening, I think yesterday was a great day actually for most trend followers, so expect these numbers to be at the low end, but they are all positive for the month of March, so BTOP50 up, up a little over 1% and a little up for the year. SockGen CT index up about 1%, also up a little bit for the year. SockGen trend index up a little more than 1%, up 1.5% for the year. And the SOCGEN short Short-Term Traders Index, as expected, up 1.4% So uh, in March. So leading the charge and also leading on the year to date, uh, 4.6%. After a quiet year last year, now they're in charge. And uh, the bridge alternatives up about a percent this month and up slightly for the year. So obviously, very different, let's call it that, from that of the equity markets. Um and um and that's what it's that's what it's meant to to do that's right i see the snow has intensified in your in your in your country yeah yeah i wonder wow. if that's the same when i get out of the office here <laughs> to see the snow <laughs>
2: i'd uh, i'd love for there to be a bit more snow um but no nothing else i uh, wish everybody a good week happy trading um, and good risk control with their portfolios.
1: Absolutely. I think that is um, good to a good reminder um, that uh, risk management is uh, as important uh, as just getting the signals right. It's uh, also to manage the risk uh, well. And um, yeah, for those who want a, a bit of inspiration uh, in terms of reading up on not just systematic trading, but just generally really good stuff in terms of of P of 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 successful investors over the years who have actually also gone on to uh, to write a book or two uh, about their approach, uh, then uh, don't uh, don't stop from going to uh, toptradersunplugged.com and get the ultimate guide of the best investment books of all times. It's free and it's available on the website, so uh, you can do that. Um, and of course, if you felt you're getting value from these conversations. We wouldn't mind, uh, to say the least. We would love, in fact, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review and and a rating because it really does help other people discover uh, our podcast, so that would be great. From Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being... Actually, before I go... I hope you did notice that we're doing something a little bit different in March as well. I should say that. Because we are releasing uh, uh, golden nuggets every day. Every weekday we're trying to get out a little bit of a golden nugget from previous episodes. Something you may have missed. It's only about five, seven minutes. So um, by all means go and listen to those as well. With that said, thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.